Habakkuk 3, 16 to 19. Hear the word of the Lord. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Usually the news moves very quickly on from one story to another because they have to keep our attention and deliver us to those who pay for advertisements. The news is the hook to get us to pay attention to the advertisements, and so they have to keep our interest. And so they move very quickly on from one story to the next, unless they find a story that keeps people attention, and apparently they have. This war in Ukraine apparently is keeping people's attention here in the West because they keep talking about it. They don't keep talking so much about the longer war that's been going on in Ethiopia, uh, but they've been really focusing on this one, and it probably is more interesting to us in the West because it's in Europe, and many of us descend from Europeans. Also, we may be liking sort of this underdog sort of story about how a smaller country is defending itself against a larger country, and and some, at least in my generation and older, may have a deep-seated fear of Russia going back to the Soviet era because I grew up with this, this threat of, of annihilation at the hands of the Soviet Union. I have had to take something of a break, though, from the news. I read a weekly news magazine, and I keep up in general with what's going on there, but I, I, had, to, I had to step away from it, and the simple reason was that I couldn't take it. I couldn't take the, the scenes and the stories of desolation and destruction and devastation and deprivation. And I just, I just, my heart couldn't take it anymore. Now, when we turn to Habakkuk, we get more of the same, actually. If you've been following along in this series, we get scenes here that are similar to the kind of scenes that are in our news today. We get scenes of of desolation and deprivation and devastation and destruction of the people of God and other nations at the hand of these Chaldeans, also known as Babylonians. But in the end of Habakkuk, we find, as we saw last week, that the prophet, he turns a corner. Even though the things weren't going to get better for Israel or for the world, or even for his life, but rather things were going to get much, much worse. In his own mind, in his own soul, in his own life, he was able to turn a corner. And that's why this, this book, while it may seem very ancient and foreign to us, and the situation is very different from our situation, it is, it is perennially relevant for us because it's, it's a turn that we all need to make in our own lives 
as well, because we find that even though the historical situation is very different than ours, we find that we have a lot in common with this man Habakkuk in his struggle of faith, in his walk of faith. Now, we probably need to make this turn not just once, and Habakkuk probably didn't make this turn just once, but probably many times in his life. And we will have to make this same turn many times in our own life. We began to see that turn last week as the prophet who began the book by complaining that God wasn't doing what he should do. And then when God said what he would do, saying, God, you can't do that. I wanted you to do something, but not that. And God told him to live by faith. And now we saw last week that he said, instead of saying, how long, O Lord? He said, I will wait quietly. So we see this this turn in, in Habakkuk. Instead of demanding of the Lord and asking when he was going to do something, Habakkuk just said, I get it now. I will wait quietly. Verse 16, after he saw this vision of God coming and conquering, he said, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That was his reaction to this encounter with God that we see in this this psalm in chapter 3. But but not only that, not only was there trembling and awe at this, this vision of God, he also said, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. He knew the day of trouble was coming, and he said, I, I will wait for it. I will wait for the day of trouble. And then, as I noticed last week, this, this last phrase of, of verse 16 could be translated a couple of different ways, and it has to do with on whom the trouble is coming. Our version says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so it sounds like, okay, I'm going to wait for them to get their comeuppance. And there may be that too, because God had just said in chapter 2 that he was going to deal with those Chaldeans after he used the Chaldeans to deal with his own people. So that may be, that may, that fits here, that I will wait until you do what you said you would do to those people who are going to cause us harm. But there's another translation that I think may be more appropriate, and that is, I'll read it out of another version, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. So is he waiting for the day of destruction on the enemies, or is he waiting for the day of destruction on himself and on his own people? It looks like it's the latter, although both, we know, will be coming. Now, the calamity that he describes is in verse 17. He describes it in a, in a poetic way. He uses repetition here. And he describes total deprivation, to be deprived of all the necessary things of life, and not only the necessary things of life, but the good things of life as well. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He actually began with what we might call luxury items. Okay, we can do, we can do without figs, right? And they could too. Um, we could do without grapes, the fruit of the vine. We, we could do without olives, but then he says, and the fields yield no food. 
no grain either. The flocks be cut off from the fold, no sheep either. And there be no herd in the stalls, no cattle either. This is getting very, very serious here, isn't it? Not only are we going to have to forego the luxury items, we're going to have to forego the necessities if things get as bad as it looks like they're going to get when the Chaldeans show up. Now, if you don't have these items, you don't have any wine, you don't have any wool, you don't have any milk, you don't have any leather either. You see, if these basic items get cut off, then many other items also are lacking. Now, notice what Habakkuk did. He anticipated events, but he also anticipated related non-events. So the events were the coming of the Chaldeans and and the destruction they would cause, but then there would be non-events. There would be no figs. That's a non-event. There would be no olives. That's a non-happening. There would be no grain. That's a non-event. No herds, no cattle. These are things that didn't happen or wouldn't happen when the bad things happen. So there, there are a couple, of, a couple of difficulties here. The bad things that would happen and the good things that wouldn't happen. And, and both of those are afflictions to us, aren't they? And sometimes the non-events are more difficult to deal with than the events. We may be able to withstand calamity, but, but for things that we have hoped for, dearly hoped for, for, for years or for decades of our lives, And they don't happen. The Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so he was describing this as deprivation, things that they they would not have in the future. And when the Chaldeans, when the Chaldeans did conquer Jerusalem, go to the last chapters of of 2 Kings, go to the last chapters of the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, go to Lamentations. And read about the the devastation, but also the deprivation that the people of God experienced when the Chaldeans came. The the city of Jerusalem was besieged for a year and a half. And finally, all the supplies gave out. They had no food whatsoever. We may be more brokenhearted about things we'd hoped for, things we wanted to have, and don't have we wanted to be married by this time but we're not we wanted to have children or more children by this time and we don't we wanted to see our our children or grandchildren walking with the lord and they're not we we wanted to to get that 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 killer promotion that we've always worked so hard for and it it hasn't come yet we wanted to get this recognition that we've lived for and prepared for and tried so hard for and it hasn't come yet and we're we're heartsick because of these things that we've lived for and they're, they're not there yet. It's hard for us to imagine this kind of devastation and deprivation as Habakkuk described. But there are people around the world. I mentioned Ukraine. I mentioned uh, Ethiopia. But you can go to other places. There are people around the world. And, and brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are experiencing these sort of things even as we speak. We, we may not. We may not ever experience warfare. We may not ever experience famine. We're a little bit put out with the supply chain difficulties, right? We go to the grocery store and we find some of the items that we were looking for, they're they're not there. And we consider that to be a bit of a a nuisance. And and we may never know what real famine is, but but there could be a a worse pandemic than this, this one we've just come through. 
there could be a really, really deadly pandemic that would come down the road and, and wipe out many, many more than this recent one has. And, and we who live here in the subtropics, uh, we, we, every once in a while, we, we look at the spaghetti maps or the spaghetti diagrams and try to figure out, is this Cat 5 hurricane coming down my street or not? And if it does, will I have anything left when it comes through here? So it may seem theoretical, but then again, it may not be. And in addition, the older we get, the more we lose. The older we get, the more we lose. Now, old age is a blessing from the Lord, but with old age comes a loss of health, a loss of strength, a loss of mental sharpness, uh, a loss of money, uh, a loss of opportunities. Nobody pays attention to us anymore. Um, also, a loss of friends and a loss of family members. And then all of us, all of us have to face the fact that death, that takes away everything that we enjoyed in this life. Everything we have on earth will eventually be lost to us. Now, that's the, that's the cheery news. Um, but we need to face it because that's what the text is forcing us to do. And, and, and what's happening here is a dress rehearsal. This is a dress rehearsal. Looking into the future and saying, what will I do if I face the loss of all things? That's the question it's forcing us to, to look at today. And what, what Habakkuk did is he made plans for that. He made plans for that day of calamity. And he said in verse 18, after saying, though there are no figs, fruit, etc., etc., he said, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So he says it twice, typical of Hebrew Poetry, it's, it's a parallel statement. I will rejoice, but not only will I rejoice, I will take joy, I will exalt, I will delight in that day when I lose all things. Now, we do this, don't we? When we're anticipating a difficult situation, we do a dress rehearsal in our mind. We, we practice, we make plans Okay, I'm going into this interview, and I think they're going to ask this question, and we, we talk our, our way through the answer to that question. Do I really need to bring up something difficult with my, my husband or my wife? And so we talk our way through it. You know, I'd like to talk to my boss about this or my roommate about that, or I have this situation coming up that's going to be kind of conflictive. And so we, we, we do this dress rehearsal. We prepare ourselves for that difficult experience so that when that difficult experience comes, we have the... The, the muscle memory, we have the, the response is already planned so that we can respond in the right way. And that's what he does here. He says, I'm going to make plans for these difficult situations. And my stated plan that I'm writing down in my agenda in that day, I will rejoice and I will take joy. These are actions. We often think of joy as something that happens to us. And, and to some degree, yes, we saw that in Philippians. We saw that, that, that circumstances do affect our experience of joy. But at the same time, it's, it's commanded in Scripture. And, and so if it's commanded in Scripture, it must be something within our grasp to practice actions. I will do the activity of rejoicing in that day. I will engage in the activity of taking joy. And notice, notice 
that he was able to make these plans because he had a lasting source of joy, a lasting source of joy. And he, he gets quite eloquent here. And he uses three different names or titles of God. He says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And when you find Lord or God in all capital letters in our version, that's referring to the personal name of God. We don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but we say things like Yahweh, the one who is, the one who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am, the eternally existent one, the God who enters into relationship with his people. And so the first thing he says is, I will rejoice in the God who makes covenant relationship with his people. I will rejoice in the God who has revealed himself personally to us as his people, to the Lord, the faithful one, the ever existent one. And then he says, I will take joy in the God, Hebrew Elohim, uh, typical word for God. Uh, I will take joy in the God, the God of my salvation, the God of my salvation. Not only the God who revealed himself to Israel, but the God, and not only the God of salvation, but you see how personal this is here? This is the God of my salvation. This Lord, this eternally existent one, this one who ever is and enters into relationship with his people, I will rejoice in him because he is my Savior. And then, and here we have a difficulty with knowing how to do this in English, in verse 19, he says, God, all capital letters, well, that's the word Yahweh once again. And then the Lord, Adonai. And so this is, this is a little tricky because Yahweh shows up twice, but we translate Yahweh as Lord. And then in 19, it shows up again and says, God, the Lord. And so if we were consistent, we'd say, Lord, the Lord. Lord, all caps, and then Lord, lower caps. But that would get a little bit confusing. But Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, Jewish people have a, a difficulty here as well because they don't pronounce the word Yahweh. They say Adonai. And so they, reading this, would say Adonai, Adonai. So it's difficult for, for all of us to, to know exactly how to bring this out. But, but now he's saying the Lord the master, the one who is in charge of all things. So the Lord, the, the God who enters into relationship with us, God who is my savior and Adonai, the master, the one who is in control of all things. You see what he's doing here? He's digging deep here. He, he's looking for solid foundations and he finds three aspects of who God is for his people. And he says, that's that's the source. That's the, the bedrock of my joy. I am going down to digging down deep to that. So that in that day of calamity, when everything else gets stripped away, I have that rock on which I might plant my feet. And I might, even in that day, rejoice and take joy. Now, um, this, this may sound theoretical. I, I, was, um, I was teaching out, as you know, I teach out at John Knox Village. And it's a lovely group of, of retired folks out at John Knox Village. And I go out there most Tuesdays and I was teaching through Philippians. And Philippians says in, in Philippians uh, 3.1, then it says it again in Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. And I was telling these folks, rejoice in the Lord. But I was feeling kind of bad about it, frankly. Because one of the great things about going out to John Knox Village is I'm the young whippersnapper out there, right? <laughs> And, uh, yeah, here I might be the elder statesman, but I go out there and they just, you know, don't exactly pat me on the head, but they're, they're so nice to have this, this young person out there with them. So I see these, these older folks 
some getting there with great difficulty with walkers or in wheelchairs, uh, having difficulty hearing, uh, some of them having difficulty, you know, just, just to be able to sit through that time. And I'm looking at them and I'm saying, folks, as I bound in with energy and then I drive off, I'm saying, folks, rejoice in the Lord. And I was feeling kind of bad about it. I was feeling like, who are you to be to saying to these people who are having so many limitations that, that come with, with advanced age? How can you be standing there in, in health and youth saying to them, rejoice in the Lord? So I just stopped and I said, folks, how does this sound to you? I see. Does this seem, does this seem realistic at all to you? This idea of rejoicing in the Lord, and they gave me a lesson that day. I, I thought maybe they would say, "No, it's really difficult." The older you get, you know, it's really hard. They said, "Actually, the older that we get, the more realistic it becomes, because we realize that the Lord is all we have in whom." to rejoice and so they taught me a lesson that day a lesson I look forward to learning more and more that as as for whatever reason the props of our happiness in this life get get knocked out from under us there is something someone who is there Yahweh God the Lord the master and because of that Lord's strength you notice in verse 19, God, Yahweh, Adonai, the master, he says, is my strength, my strength. What does he say? He makes me so strong that he makes my feet like the deer's feet. He makes me tread on my high places. And here he paints an image of a, a deer frolicking sure-footedly on high places. Now, what are high places? Well, high places very obviously are places that are dangerous where you probably don't want to be dancing around because you could slip and you could fall if you're not careful. So that, that certainly is the image here. But if you look through the Old Testament, you also find that high places were a problematic thing for Israel. If you look at the, the, the history of the kings, they were, they were judged about what they did with the high places because the high places in the, the ancient world were the places where the gods dwelt. And so what the, the worshipers of these various gods would do, they would build altars where? On the high places. So high places were pagan idol worship places. And notice what, what he says here. God, who is my strength, the Lord, Adonai, who is my strength, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on. He doesn't say the high places. What does he say? My high places. He, he, is, he is saying, I am owning these high places. These high places, no, no matter how high these high places might be, no, no matter how many pagan false gods might be worshipped in these places, that's where I'm going to place my feet and not just stand. I am going to stride on these high places. These are my high places. I am going to, through the strength of the Lord, walk, dance, tread on these high places. I am converting these high places into my high places. These places that look so dangerous and are so dangerous. These places that can be so pagan. He says, no, 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 no. Through the strength of the Lord, I am owning these places. And I am going to walk sure-footedly on them. There was a high place, another high place that was transformed 
It was a place of death. It was a place of destruction. It was a place of danger in the Roman world, and it was transformed. It was a cross. And historically on the cross, that's where people died. That's where people were destroyed. That's where they were deprived of absolutely everything. But we find that Jesus owned that high place. He made it his own high place. He took that high place and he stood on that high place. He walked on that high place. And and surprisingly, we have this this prophecy in in John chapter 3, right before the famous For God so loved the world verse. There's a verse that says, just as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the desert, he lifted it up to a high place so that everyone could see on this staff there was this, this serpent. It said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He was going to be lifted up to that high place, that high place that had always been a place of destruction and death and devastation and deprivation. He would be lifted up to that high place so that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. You see, Jesus has owned the high place and Jesus can give eternal life from that ownership of that high place that place of death and destruction that he turned into a place of eternal life. We find these strange, apparently contradictory descriptions or instructions of Jesus in Luke chapter 21. We read this. Jesus said in verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now talk about devastation. Your own parents, your own relatives, giving you up to be killed. And then he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. How does that work? Yeah, your own relatives may give you up to be killed. You may be hated by all on my account. But don't worry, because not a hair of your head will perish. Oh yeah, they might kill you. You might be killed at the, at the very hands of your, your, your loved ones, but don't worry. You're not losing anything. In that day when you have lost everything, you have not lost anything if you are in Christ. How, how can that be? The, the sisters were weeping. Martha and Mary lost their brother. And Jesus comforted them. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she said, basically, yeah, yeah, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like she had her catechism right. And then Jesus said, no, I I want you to understand what I'm saying here. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, this translation says, says, shall never die. But but more literally, it would be everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. And so that's how it works. Yeah, they may put you to death. You may be hated by all on account of me, but don't worry. That that that's small potatoes compared to what what's what's going on here. Not a hair of your head will be lost. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And actually. Thinking about it, really, it's not, he's not even going to die. She's not even going to die forever. It's just going to be a temporary passage. Let's, let's review 
Habakkuk. Let's review Habakkuk's journey and, and, and find our place in that journey. He began by complaining. God, you're not doing anything about the violence around me. And God says, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe if somebody told you. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk says, oh, no, 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 no. Not that. Not the Chaldeans. And he understood that God meant he was going to use the Chaldeans to punish the Judeans. He said, God, they're worse. You can't do that. That's not like you. You can't do that. And then God said, the righteous will live by faith. That was his response. The righteous will live by faith. And then we have those oracles of destruction. Yes, God said, I will deal with the Chaldeans later. But I'm going to use the Chaldeans first to deal with the Judeans. The righteous will live by faith. And then in chapter 3, we get this vision of God coming and conquering. And Habakkuk zips it. And he says, I will wait patiently. And not only will I wait, I will rejoice. And I will take joy. Quite a transformation in three chapters, isn't it? Habakkuk arrived, arrived at this resting place. And we would do well to do the same, to follow that same pathway from complaining to resting, from fearing to rejoicing. And, and notice how he did this. What did he learn? He learned that God was sufficient for him, even if he lost everything else. And so he prepared, he planned for that day of losing all things so that when it came, when it came, he would be ready. And, and we need to do that, that same sort of dress rehearsal in our minds, don't we? Probably not constantly thinking about death and destruction and deprivation, but knowing that it's coming. And so preparing ourselves beforehand. Because if we want Jesus to be enough for us on that day when we lose all things, we need to practice having him be enough for us now. If we want to be able to rejoice in the Lord in that day of calamity, we need to practice rejoicing in the Lord now. This is one of the most remarkable and powerful statements of faith in all of Scripture, or maybe in all of literature. The Lord said to Habakkuk, I know what I'm doing. What I'm doing is best. The righteous will live by faith. And guess what Habakkuk learned? Habakkuk learned, no matter what was coming, to live by faith. And so can we. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this, this short prophecy that's really less a prophecy than it is a, an experience between a believer and you as he wrestles with what you do or don't do in the world. And we find ourselves in this book it's, it's hard-hitting, it's troubling, 
And it is so very comforting, Lord, as it, it peels back the layers and leaves us with the essence of the faith. And Lord, I, I pray that, that you would enable us as we contemplate things in the future that we dread, events and the possibility of non-events that we so long for, that we would do that dress rehearsal right now, that we would prepare for that day, that we would learn the habit of rejoicing and taking joy in the Lord so that no matter what comes, we would be ready to rejoice in Jesus, the one who was lifted up onto that high place of the cross and then in the resurrection lifted up to your throne that he might give life and along with that life joy to all who believe in him. We pray this in his name.